everyone, and welcome to the show. This is episode number 45 of Pop Culturally Deprived, and today we're going to be talking about Star Trek II, The Wrath of Khan, on your Damn It, Jim podcast. I'm Mandy Kay. And I'm Matthew Vose. This week, we are joined by our friend Jen, who is host of A Command of Her Own, a podcast about Star Trek Discovery. Jen, I'm so glad you're here, and welcome to the show. Thank you, Mandy. I'm so excited to be on today. It's very exciting to be doing uh, a Star Trek film, finally, and to talk about Star Trek. Jen, obviously you are a big fan of it. Can you yes. give us a bit of an idea of your, your history and, and why you like Star Trek so much? Okay, so Star Trek, the original series, was on in the background in my house when I was a kid. And one of the first times I can remember it, it was the episode with the Gorn, called The Arena. Mm. And it started giving me recurring nightmares. <laughs> so there was a... <laughs> Oh no! I was, I was about stop. five, so I was very little, and um, so I stopped watching it. Like I started avoiding it for a while, and then years later, when my sister and I were like kind of part babysitters at a New Year's Eve party, an episode of Star Trek: The Next Generation came on late at night, and we both fell like instantly in love. And then we realized it was Star Trek, so we just started okay. watching Star Trek: The Next Generation, and. When Deep Space Nine came on when I was a little older, that's when I really got it because that's like my show and mm. that's the one I'm the biggest fan of. And then, yeah, my dad was a fan. So when Star Trek conventions used to come to Vancouver, we would go do that with him. And I've oh, I've nice. always been sort of the original series has been my least favorite, hmm. although I love the movies. So they're my favorite <laughs> movies of the Star Trek universe, but not right. the TV show. It's a good job, because that's one we're doing today. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I, I've got a very similar history with it as well. I can remember family watching it, and, and the movies are, I think, my introduction to it. Mm -hmm. I can remember Star Trek Three being on on a cruise at some point, and my mum buying me the video of Star Trek Six, and mm -hmm. But yeah, from there, you just start watching it and watching it and watching it, and then there's, yep. you know, 200, 400 episodes. That's right. <laughs> Mandy, how come you've never watched, certainly, this film? I have always thought that I hated the original Star Trek and its cast, at least watching it, not indulging in pop culture references because those are always awesome. Mm -hmm. And it came out before I was born. And we all know I don't do too well with movies that came out before I was born. <laughs> I mean, just. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it was like four or five months before I was born, but still, it was before I was born. So okay. um, I do want to make it clear, though, that just because I've never watched the original Star Trek or its movies, that doesn't mean I haven't watched Star Trek at all. I am a big fan of The Next Generation and Voyager. Those two are my favorites. And I am actually now uh, starting to watch Discovery. Yay. Nice. <laughs> that has me very happy. <laughs> I am way behind, though. But I'm getting there. Okay. We, we will stay tight-lipped. Yes. <laughs> things things keep happening. Okay, a little bit of background information about Star Trek II. Uh, the Wrath of Khan is a 1982 science fiction film. It's based on the 1960s TV series Star Trek. It is the follow-up to 1979 Star Trek The Motion Picture, which was a relative commercial success, but a critical disaster. The over-reliance on special effects, the lack of character drama, the bland nature of the visuals, and the poor antagonist were all cited against it. For the sequel, Harve Bennett was called in as executive producer, and Gene Roddenberry, Star Trek's creator, was given the ceremonial position of executive consultant. 
Bennett told the Paramount executives he could make five better movies for the same budget as the motion picture. Watching the original series, Bennett was most taken by the episode Space Seed, featuring the Enterprise discovering Khan and his crew in suspended animation. He knew that a strong villain was important to making a good movie, and started basing his scripts with Khan as the antagonist. Leonard Nimoy had not enjoyed his time on the motion picture, so to entice him back they offered him a good death scene, which was originally at the very start of the movie, a la Psycho. However, they started moving it further back into the film as further drafts were produced, and eventually it became a major emotive point in the film's finale. The Wrath of Khan is generally considered one of, if not the best film in the Star Trek film franchise. It was a critical and commercial success, with another four films based on the original series crew to follow. There are four more films after this one. With this crew. There's now 13 in the franchise. I think, like, basically Mm -hmm. only James Bond has got more films for a major, major franchise. Oh, and the MCU now. <laughs> yeah, I just I just didn't realize there were so many, like, Kirk films. Mm. Interesting. So, Mandy, can you tell us uh, briefly what this film is about? Absolutely. Uh, in this movie, Captain Kirk is confronted by an old nemesis and must stop him from turning a life-generating device into the ultimate weapon. That's fairly accurate, right? Yeah. Yeah. You, you don't sound convinced. How would you put we- it? I, I think we'll get into Genesis. Genesis is very much the MacGuffin of the film. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so, Matthew, how did you watch this movie? I have the original series movies DVD box set, so I have it within that set, having previously had it on its own DVD and its own video and different formats. Basically, if they keep consolidating the, the box sets down to smaller and smaller sets, I'll buy them. <laughs> <laughs> so, Jen, how did you watch it? I watched uh, the director's widescreen edition DVD. I have all of the original series movies in that edition format. That is very cool and not surprising mm-hmm. at all to me. Nope. And now I got get to be the odd man out because <laughs> clearly I do not own this movie on DVD or any sort of uh, movie device. So I had to watch it on Hulu, which I was very, very excited to find it on Hulu. Great. <laughs> So, Mandy, you and I had a quick conversation about uh, the the history of Star Trek and certainly a bit about the first film and where this film comes from. So I'm going to insert that here. Talk to me about Star Trek. Okay. So to give you some background, Star Trek is an ensemble show about the main crew members of the Star Trek Starship Enterprise. It focuses on the core three, the, the triumvirate of Captain Kirk, Mr. Spock and Dr. McCoy. They explore, they solve crises, they overcome dangers, and are all the best of friends with no interpersonal conflict on the crew. Because Gene Roddenberry thought, by this time, we would not have interpersonal conflict with the people we work with. Okay. I don't think that's true. No. Now, I think you've you've seen Star Trek. You have some idea about it anyway, don't you? Yes. I've seen a few episodes of the original series, but I'm more familiar with later iterations of the show. Okay. So, we're going to be diving straight into Star Trek Two. So, in the first movie... Star Trek The Motion Picture, which is the worst subtitle ever. (laughs) Captain Kirk has been promoted. He is now Rear Admiral and Chief of Starfleet Operations. Spock has gone off on a Vulcan retreat to purge all emotion, and McCoy has resigned his commission and been returned to Earth. Oh. Yeah. The Enterprise is being refitted, so it will now be a lot prettier in the movies. (laughs) Um, and at the recommendation of Rear Admiral Kirk, it is now under the command of Captain Willard Decker. Okay. So there, in the first movie, there is a major threat to Earth, a giant 
cloud of stuff. It's heading for Earth, and the Enterprise is one of the few ships that can get to it in time. So Kirk rushes the Enterprise back into service, despite the refit. He takes command, which angers Decker, and he gets the team back together. Uh, there is a, a transporter accident, so the new Vulcan science officer dies, so he manages to get Spock on board through reasons. Um, and he gets McCoy back into service by basically forcing him to. They then have a whole adventure, there's a whole thing, and they save the day. Decker is gone at the end of this as part of the cloud thing. It's a bit strange. Part of the cloud thing? So this cloud, at the centre of this cloud is a being, which is a machine called Vija, which it turns out is the Voyager probe, which was sent out of the uh, out of the solar system with information about humanity and great works of music and so on on board. And it has eventually found a planet of machine beings and has returned to Earth, uh, consuming all on its path. And in the end, they are able to stop it. I, I think part of that is Decker and this other woman on board, Ilea, becoming part of Vija, so it can cross the mechanical, technological, biological boundary. Okay, that's interesting. Yeah. Obviously, when we record, I'll give you a bit of information about what happened with that film, why Star Trek II is so different from that film. But we now join them at the beginning of Star Trek II. Kirk is still an admiral. And the Enterprise is once again under new command. Okay. Now, the second film has callbacks to, to earlier events and other things that have happened, but it's explained in the process of the film, so I'm not planning to go into more detail. Okay. Um, is there anything more you want me to go into about the crew of the Enterprise, about the stuff we've seen in the original series or that first movie? Is it just those three from the original series that we get in the movies? No, it's the whole crew. One of the crew, in fact, the uh, young Russian Chekhov is on a different ship. He's now on a science ship. Okay. Does he come back? He is in the film, yes. Okay. Okay. I really have no idea what the Wrath of Khan is about other than Kirk yells, Khan! <laughs> Literally the only thing I know. That famous gif, yeah. <laughs> um, so, yeah, I think... That lead up is really helpful. I think knowing okay. um, kind of this comes after the original series that they've continued to go on in their lives that, you know, people have been promoted and moved on to other things. Mm -hmm. I think that's really helpful. And I probably would have been confused about what was going on with these people jumping straight into the second movie if you hadn't told me that. Yeah. The, the opening of the film, the Enterprise has not got Captain Kirk or Admiral Kirk on board. So I, I didn't want you watching going, uh, spending the first half hour going like, where is he? What's going on? <laughs> right. Okay. Who's this? Why are we? Yeah. Okay. <laughs> All right. But some of that work is done in that first film, so. Okay. Sounds good. Good. I think. I am trying to be really excited about it. I. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe that's all I should say. <laughs> I'm trying to be excited about it. It's Star Trek. No, I like Star Trek. I like modern I know, I know. Star Trek. <laughs> How about that? Okay. 90s and later Star Trek. So I'm I'm trying to go into this realizing that it's part of a franchise that I really do enjoy and so I should probably enjoy this one too. Mhm. Mm so we'll we'll see where I end up on that. Yes. Okay. Uh we will look forward to talking more for everyone in a couple of minutes. <laughs> probably not even a couple of minutes, probably like a second. Right. I'll put in a beep and then it, and then it'll go beep. So we're back with the show guys. <laughs> Beep. <laughs>
So that was a really interesting conversation. Um, I obviously gave you, I, I tried to limit the expectations for the film, but give you a bit of build up so you weren't coming in surprised and questioning it for the whole thing. So what what were your expectations before you watched this? Really, my only expectation was that I thought I wouldn't hate it. I mean, that's hmm. a pretty low bar, but, you know, I, I didn't think I would hate it. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> maybe four out of ten. Um mm-hmm. And for some reason, I also expected there to be an abundance of damn it gems, and there was only one. So I was a little disappointed by that. Uh, the, the cast of Star Trek are obviously very famous, having been in this franchise for decades. Uh, what's your experience outside of this, particularly for uh, William Shatner, Leonard Nimoy, and then our, our big actors in this, Kirstie Alley and Ricardo Montalban? Uh, Ricardo Montalban, no idea who he is. I don't think I've ever seen him in anything else. And I forgot to look him up. So I'm only guessing at that because he didn't look familiar to me. And I never heard that name before. He was in a a show called Fantasy Island, if that means anything to you. Oh, I never watched it. Okay. Like, I've heard of it, but I never watched it. Okay. William Shatner, I know him because of Star Trek. Um, Mm. And then later I saw his Twilight Zone episode. There's a man out there. What? Look, look, he's crawling on. Have seen him in various things throughout. Um, but the most exciting thing is that I actually saw him speak at Wizard World Raleigh in 2015. And so mm-hmm. I have lots of pictures of him sitting up on the stage and was really surprised at how funny he is in real life. Especially for like an 80 something year old now. Mm, the, the, uh, it's either his biography or autobiography or something but but the blurb starts with bill shatner gets the joke about bill shatner and yes i think that's true he knows what his persona is and he just goes with it absolutely he does Mm -hmm. yeah uh leonard nimoy i literally only know him as spock okay and interestingly enough with kirstie alley i basically know everything she's done except for star trek i had no (laughs) idea she was in this and it completely shocked me when i saw her on the screen this is the introducing kirstie alley yeah i went and looked her up and i was like was this the first thing that she ever did and it was actually the second thing on her filmography she did Mm. something in like 1978 and then this was the very next thing and it completely like blew my mind like holy shit is that kirstie alley as a vulcan what yeah it was weird possibly cast because she can do the eyebrow thing really well (laughs) Mm, okay okay um right star trek 2 the wrath of khan did you enjoy it surprisingly way more than i expected to okay okay so you expected that you wouldn't hate it but you did actively enjoy it can you give me some sort of summary? Is that a, a an acting thing, a plot thing? I think some of it is just that I am in a place in my life now where I actively appreciate science fiction in ways that I never did before. Hmm. And, and so I'm coming to it from the place of being a sci-fi fan where as earlier in my life, I wasn't really there. And and so I think that helped a lot, and it, I came in it to it with a different lens than I would have, say, when I was in high school or college. The plot was actually really good. I really appreciated how they jumped right into the conflict. And, mm-hmm. I mean, Khan was on the screen in, like, the first 15 minutes, and I didn't expect that. 
And so it was just kind of nonstop. And the exposition that they gave wasn't fluffy. It was really direct and to the point. And so I just kind of felt like I was watching something that was telling me a good story. And I really enjoyed it. Yeah, because we didn't talk about the the original episode that Khan was in, Space Seed. Um, whilst I could have given you that, I think the film does actually fill you in. It has a bit of work to do to let you know who he is. But like you say, it gets that done very, very quickly. It did. I actually paused it and went and looked it up. Um, mm. Just because I wanted to make sure I had the whole story. But I didn't learn anything that I wasn't already told. No. in the dialogue of this movie. And so they they did a really good job of laying out the story in a very clear and concise way. Mm. Yeah, the only other thing from the episode, I think, is, is the fact that it's one of uh, Kirk's crew who helps him mutiny and try to take over. And, right. and she is generally a bit wet and a bit rubbish and a bit useless and is exiled <laughs> with him. <laughs> the Star Trek TV shows do not treat women particularly well. Oh, no. The old ones anyway. And then the, the films do it much, much better. Well, this one was fine. Hmm. I mean, we really only have the two women, but... Yeah, and there was only one moment that's a hint of um, Savick in the lift with Kirk, which, where he ends up getting the side eye from McCoy about, oh, it's you two, is it? Who's been holding up the damn elevator? Thank you, sir. She changed your hairstyle? I hadn't noticed her. <laughs> yeah, but that was just one moment, and I think that was really more of a nod to his character from the mm. show because they never, like, it never came up again. Yeah, absolutely. The the reunion with Carol Marcus that could very easily turn into something romantic. It, it is clearly there is nothing there between them. Even when they're talking about David and she takes him by the hand, it is it is as equals and friends. Right. There's certain things that I find to be like characteristic Star Trek things, like the sweeping shot of the ship and things like that. Mm. And just wondering if Mandy stopped at any point and was like, okay, like eye rolling or if you enjoyed it all or things like that. Was there any moments where you stopped and were like, okay, is this a Star Trek thing? Or was it just like a good sci-fi movie experience? No, I don't think so because, mm -hmm. I mean, this isn't my first experience with Star Trek. So, I mean, I'm very kind of in tune with what might be a Star Trek thing, okay. just because there are some things that are consistent across all of the different shows in the franchise and even have moved into the new J.J. Uh, Abrams reboot. And so things that are Star Trek are just things that are endearing, I guess. Um, even down to William Shatner's overacting. It's just, <laughs> that that's a William Shatner thing, you know? And <laughs> I mean, where else are you going to get somebody who just sits there for a second and then goes, <laughs> for no real reason? <laughs> so, um, as far as like special effects and everything go, I thought everything was really good, um, except for the bits inside the nebula. Uh, those were the only ones that really irritated me because they were kind of poorly done. But everything else was just a good sci-fi movie. Interesting you saying about the sweeping shot of the Enterprise and, the, and that moment coming out of Space Dog, because I feel like it, it's almost a, a middle finger up at the first film from Nicholas Mayer directing this one, because the first film has, it, it's probably got like 10, 20 minutes of that sort of shot of the Enterprise, you know, because they've, they've refitted it, so it's now this gorgeous ship for the for the movie, but it spends so long doing that, you, you're switched off in the film. 
Right. You know, these days you'd be checking at your phone or chatting to someone and so on. Um, so this film, I think they, they do it as really quickly. Let's just get the shot over and done with and move on. But it's a really nice shot. It is. Mm, oh, yeah. yeah. It, it's always a nice moment, but but they play it to the exact right amount to show them how poorly that first film was done. I, <laughs> I don't like the first film, just so we're clear. <laughs> I'm I'm also not a fan of the first film. So, yeah, I, I agree with you there. The other bit that I love that does have a bit of an impact on this is where they find out that there is an issue with the uh, Genesis space station. Regular one. Um, mm-hmm. and, and Kirk is reticent to take over the Enterprise and Spock. It may be nothing. Garbled communications. You take the ship. Jim, you proceed from a false assumption. I am a Vulcan. I have no ego to bruise. In the first film, he takes over and it angers the person that he takes over from. And that causes conflict between them for the for the rest of the film. Which is against what Gene Roddenberry wanted Star Trek to be. He didn't want there to be conflict between characters. So it's really nice to, to actually, they, they discuss it. And they discuss whether they should or not. And they're both trying to sort of downplay themselves. It works really nicely. And it gives us that great shot of Kirk speaking to Spock whilst also being reflected looking down on him above him. Which is really strange, but when you compare that to the end scene and how they're trying to be as close as possible, but they're still separated to that moment where they are being friends and talking to each other, but you have this separation and reflection in glass. I like that as a juxtaposition across the film. I hadn't noticed that in that first scene, and now I'm going to have to go back and take a look for it. But yeah, all the scenes I thought were particularly well shot. I was I haven't watched this in years, so it was actually a bit of a surprise to me going back to it. I mm. wasn't expecting to like it as much as I still did. Like I remembered it fondly, but I was uh expecting to find more parts where I wanted to pick apart things or parts that the pacing felt off on, but mm. it was actually really well paced and all the scenes were really well done and um, like Mandy said, the only special effects that really kind of pushed me out were when they got to the nebula. Mm. Yeah, and unlike some older films, I don't think there's anything really problematic in this. Because that is the worry about going back and watching something after, you know, 30 years. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So one of the big twists at the end is that Spock does die. Man- Mandy, did you expect that to come? And did it affect you when it was there? I definitely didn't expect it. But it also didn't really affect me either. Because, Mm. I mean, it's Star Trek and there are so many other things in the future of the franchise that I know Spock is in. So I knew that he either wasn't actually dead in that moment or that he didn't stay dead. And um, then they showed the coffin. And so I thought, oh, okay, he's well, he's actually dead. But then they were really not subtle in setting up the next movie. So I just wasn't sad. (laughs) Because, I mean, I knew what was going to happen next, even though I haven't seen it. Do you know what the third film is called? I have no idea what the third film is called. Okay. I I read it. I know I did because I looked up. I actually think I Googled did, when did Spock die or something like that just to make sure I wasn't crazy because I know he's in later films. Mm. And so I kind of read through that history a little bit, um, but I don't remember what it's called. Okay. Is it called like The Rise of Spock? Uh, uh, <laughs> <laughs> Uh, it's the search for Spock. Search for Spock. Okay. <laughs> the search for Spock. Yeah. I listened recently to an interview with one of the producers on the show, Robert Zalin. 
Mm. And it was interesting because his he was sharing that the movie changed. Like the script obviously went through rewrites and everything. But like Matthew said at the beginning, Leonard Nimoy didn't originally want to continue on the Star Trek franchise because of some of his negative experiences and wanting to branch out. So they're like, okay, well, we'll write you a death scene. And so he agreed to join in. And then as the filming and everything started and he started experiencing uh, everything with Star Trek II, it was so much better. And then, of course, the story leaks that Spock died and mm. fan reaction was so negative. So then they kept having to like rework the script to make it like less obvious and like move it around and try different things. And by the end of filming on Star Trek II, Leonard Nimoy had agreed to come back and do more films. And so they left it nebulous at the end, seemingly. And I mean, it's easy for us to go back and look at it and be like, oh, yeah, it's, you can tell they're kind of setting up the movie. Uh, but one of my friends who's older than I am saw it in theaters. And he was such a huge Spock fan and a huge Star Trek fan. And he was just a kid. And after the movie, he like went into the bathroom at the movie theater and was just sobbing. He was oh, so upset wow. that Spock died. And yeah, so it was like this huge moment for him. Mm. So it was, I guess, much more of a big dramatic event back when it originally played. But now we all just, it's easy to be like, yeah, we know. Uh, yeah, I think if I hadn't known, like if this had somehow managed to be something that I had stayed completely spoiler free from, I would have been really upset. I mean, because I did get a little bit teary eyed, even though I knew that he wasn't going to stay dead. Um, just because of of the emotion and and the investment in the character, I think. Mm. But it's easy not to be super sad when you know, you know, when you already know that this isn't really the end. I think if I was watching this for the first time in 1982, I probably would have been pretty distraught. It is one of the emotional moments in a film that I have cried at in the past, yeah. and not not the first time I saw it. Probably like the dozenth time I saw it. But it is still affecting when you're really in the moment. And, and yeah. like you say, it's because it is portrayed so well. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it still gets me, like, teary-eyed. And mm. even though I know Spock lives, the, the scene where <laughs> he and Kirk are there and having that moment, it still gets me upset. I think being directly followed by the funeral as well. Mm, yeah, where there's bagpipe music and... Yeah. Yeah. I will say, though, that... The song Amazing Grace being in Star Trek mm -hmm. really kind of threw me off. Okay. How come? There was that whole debate this year about whether or not you were allowed to say the word God on Star Trek and things like that. And then you kind of think about it and there's really never been that much in the way of religion on Star Trek. And so just to have Amazing Grace be so prominently played just seemed out of place. Although simultaneously fitting because it was Spock's funeral and he was so such a large part of the show. I don't know. Maybe okay. it's just me. Mm -hmm. After you said it, you're right. There's supposed to be this like time after religion for Star Trek. And so to have what's really a hymn played at a funeral does seem a little out of place. But I don't know that they were thinking too hard about that when they were actually making the movie. Right. Because, I mean, if any song is going to induce tears in a funeral scene, it's going to be Amazing Grace played on bagpipes. Because yeah. that is just beautiful and heart-wrenching. Mm -hmm. mm -hmm. It's funny. It, I, yeah, I do utterly associate it with funerals because we sang it um, at my nan's cremation. 
Now, she was Scottish. It wasn't on black bagpipes, but it is It is uh, exactly this is the moment this, this song is always used for me. So mm-hmm. uh, I think that's possibly why it adds to some of the affectation. Affectation? Affectingness? Amount it affects me. <laughs> There's lots of different stories about that point on setting up the next movie. I, I think I've heard Bill Shatner say, oh, yeah, he just decided to do it in the moment, the, the remember thing. Like, no, no, he didn't. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think there was so much improv and ad-libbing on Star Trek, Bill. Thanks. <laughs> right. Yeah, I think Bill sometimes likes to tell the story in a in a good dramatic fa- fashion. Yeah, if he has an audience. <laughs> yeah. So Khan himself, Ricardo Montalban, he was very good as Khan in the original, and I think that's, that's one of the things that spoke out. But then he played this character, uh, Mr. Rourke, on Fantasy Island that was a, a fundamentally very different character, as I understand it, having not seen it. But I think he is pretty incredible in this. Did he come across as a good villain? Did you like him? Did you root for him at all? I almost never root for the villain, so no. Okay. In fact, I'm trying to think of an instance where I have rooted for the villain. And other than Dr. Horrible, I'm not sure that I ever have. (laughs) (laughs) What did you make of him, though? Oh, that's a good question. Exceedingly arrogant Hmm. and kind of illogical. It's just, it never makes sense to me when these stories about revenge, they always come from a place where the bad guy has done something really, really bad. And so he deserves to be banished or punished or whatever happens. And then you get this whole other story where he has to get revenge and do something really bad again, just because he was caught. And I don't know, I just... I don't like that. Like, it doesn't make sense to me. Okay. Especially when you're supposed to be as genetically superior and smart as Khan is. Hmm. I don't know. They didn't really expand on that, uh, that aspect of it in this hmm. movie, on the whole, you know, genetically modified thing. That was something I read in the Wikipedia article about Space Seed. <laughs> okay. From a story perspective, one of the reasons he wants revenge is that... SETI Alpha 6 exploded six months after we were left here. The shock shifted the orbit of this planet and everything was laid waste. Admiral Kirk never bothered to check on our progress. It was only the fact of my genetically engineered intellect that allowed us to survive. Do you get that he's angry because of that? Do you think Kirk should have checked in on him? Do we put some blame on Starfleet for not like following up? I don't know, honestly. When he said that, my first instinct was, wow, he banished some people to a planet and then never made sure they were okay again. Mm. But at the same time, the universe is freaking huge. <laughs> you know, I mean, is it really feasible to expect him to check back in when he put them on a perfectly habitable planet and what happened was just a freak accident. I wouldn't necessarily blame Kirk myself, but Mm -hmm. I do sort of think that, you know, he would have reported everything to Starfleet and if Starfleet has knowledge of these genetically advanced people who have tried to wrest control of things in the past... I would think that they'd at least have, like, a beacon by the planet to monitor things and maybe to tell other wayward travelers that this is not a good place to land. 
Yeah. <laughs> that was this dude you know, will kill you. <laughs> just a thought. Yeah, yeah. But then we wouldn't have had the wrath of Khan, so yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> it, very quickly, he shows off just how malevolent he is with the uh, Seti eels. Allow me to introduce you to Seti Alpha Five's only remaining indigenous life form. Any reaction to to bugs crawling in people's ears, Mandy? No, 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 no. <laughs> no. No. Think, Did I say growing, no? Yeah, growing a bit larger and then crawling back out again. Oh, no. I think that is universally irksome. I, I don't know anyone who would be like, oh, that part didn't bother me at all. <laughs> Yeah, at first, I didn't quite understand what he was going to do with them. So if you look at my notes, I'm like, oh, what is he going to do with the slug things? And then all of a sudden, I realized, and in all caps, I'm like, what is he going to do with the slug things? (laughs) (laughs) And then I switched to my no, no, no's, because that was not okay. Yeah, this is the only, I think, 15 rated uh, classified film in the UK in in the Star Trek franchise. And I suspect that is the reason why. Even before I saw it, this was kind of a famous moment. Because, ooh, kind of gory. That's not a, not a Star Trek thing. Mm-hmm. I mean, it is now. It wasn't really now, that gory. It was just... N- now we drop F-bombs gross. and stuff in Star Trek. So. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the rules are totally different now. That's right. Um, I actually put this on the other day while my children were in the room. And they didn't really catch this part at all because they were busy doing their own thing. But they did happen to look up at possibly the only other gory moment when the Enterprise oh, no. crew comes onto the space station and the bodies drop from above. Mm. And I'd forgotten it, so I kind of was like freezing and being like, oh, oh, how are they going to react? And they're four and six. And they totally oh. did not even catch on that they were dead bodies. They were just mm. like, oh, they're upside down. That's funny. And then like back to their own thing. <laughs> Which, <laughs> I don't know if that's a statement about the other things my children have seen or how the special effects are but that's the only other scene that i think would make it sort of higher on the gore scale mm. yeah there's there's the moment of the engineer's mate dying mm-hmm. uh, and then khan himself at the end mm-hmm. oh yeah that khan at the end was a little disturbing mm. i mean you know he's a bit flagrant with his bare chest all the way through so <laughs> there's definite <laughs> yes. nudity going on in here yeah, I was trying to figure out why they did that, and the only thing I can come up with is that he's so tired of having to be covered in head to toe because they're sand people, that now that he's off that planet, he just wants to show all his skin. <laughs> That's all I got. It, it's because he's ripped. <laughs> there there are jokes online about being a, a chest prosthesis that they used for it, <laughs> but I think it's a nod to the original costume he wore. On the the Space Seed episode, I think. Mm, okay. But oh, I okay. I did not rewatch the that episode for the this podcast, so it's been a long time since I've actually seen it. Okay. So yeah, that was the nod to the 1960s fashion. We we had a couple of people on Twitter who mentioned the Seti eels. Uh, both Rachel and Josie, you know, never turn your back on an earwig, uh, and, and the earwigs are their first memory when they think about the film. This was a great story from Matt Not Sailing Alone that they went to a double feature drive-in uh, movie and the first one was E.T. and then she was supposed to sleep for the second film which was this but she stayed up and then got terrified of earwigs. <laughs> and we had a, a lovely follow-up from uh, at six, Six-Legged Knits, the entomologist who says it's not an earwig and really earwigs are very unlikely to do this thing. 
they were apparently more inspired by slugs than earwigs. It's just mm. slimy, icky things. <sighs> Covered in raspberry jam. <laughs> I do have two follow-up things about these slug things, though. Mm-hmm. First, why did they not do anything to get them out of their heads once they had Chekhov and Captain Terrell back with them? They knew that they had been under control with these ear things, and then they just kind of let them be part of everything. Why did they not try to get them out of their heads? My take on it mm-hmm. is that they were, it seems like Kirk and Spock kind of were aware of it, and were going to use it against them. Like, they kind of figured, okay, well, they're under their control. Now we can control some of the intel that's getting back to Khan. Not the best explanation, since, mm-hmm. you know, this is it. something that could injure a crew member. Um, but it could also just have been that, you know, their ship's been fired upon and they don't have the medical resources to tackle this right now either i can buy that yeah it does end up killing one of the uh, genesis scientists mm-hmm. which yeah. i always feel really sorry for that guy like david has a go at Terrell, savik shoves him out of the way and then scientists do this shot mm-hmm. yeah i had Very to harsh. rewind that to figure out who died because <laughs> i was like yeah. wait who just died <laughs> yeah whilst he's not in a red shirt <laughs> he is totally a red shirt yes <laughs> yeah yeah uh so my other thing is what was it that made the slug thing crawl out of his ear? Because the way Khan described it was that they would just keep growing bigger and bigger and driving people mad and like eating them from the inside out. So why did it just come out on its own? Was that just a hand wavy plot device thing? I think we're yeah. supposed to believe that they only stay there when they're in control of their hosts. And that because Chekhov okay. wouldn't shoot. He was then reasserting himself, and the thing was like, oh, off to find a new okay. you know, host to infest. Hmm. But I can see where you'd be okay. confused, because that is not at all overtly explained, or this is just me. I, I try and always fill in headcanon. Yeah, I like that. That's good. Yeah, I like that too. <laughs> okay. there, there was a funny line that Gene Roddenberry hated it, because Kirk shoots the, the seti eel. Mm-hmm. And he, and he says, so this is a creature that Kirk has never seen before that might be the only thing in the, in the world, in the, in the universe, but he shoots it. <laughs> like an, he, I think he says, like an old lady stepping on a tarantula, <laughs> which is an image unto itself. I, I get, I think, where he's coming from, that he's supposed to be an explorer seeking out new life and new civilizations. But also this thing has just crawled out of his friend's head, so... <laughs> yes. Mm-hmm. Like, I probably would have stepped on it rather than shooting it with a phaser. <laughs> Honestly. Although uh, shooting it was far less messy. I don't think I'd want to try stepping on it. I think I'd be shooting it from far, far away. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> See, seeing if the rats can eat it. Yeah. <laughs> Why is there a rat on a space station? <laughs> I don't know. That's all I was thinking is, why is there a rat here? <laughs> That's a weird moment. <laughs> That's a, a very okay. good question. <laughs> yeah, that's always a very weird it. moment. <laughs> okay. That's a very sort of Farscape moment, almost. <laughs> <laughs> the the film is obviously very centred around Khan, clearly, and Kirk and Spock, um, and, and some of what each is going through. For Kirk, it's his feeling of growing older, not being in control of the ship, but not feeling like he perhaps should be. Galloping around the cosmos is a game for the young doctor. 
did you buy his feeling on that and his moment at the end of I feel young now I'm back in charge of the ship and my best friend has died? The end result, yes. The way they set it up, no. That okay. whole young and old thing was stupid. I think um, I, I feel more like Kirk was doing what he thought he was supposed to be doing as an old man, as as an admiral, um, hmm. even though he wanted to still be out there and he st- wanted to still be a captain and flying around and doing these missions and adventures. That's not what he's supposed to do at this point in his life. And that's why he was so depressed on his birthday, because, oh, my God, he was a Debbie Downer on his birthday. <laughs> <laughs> You know, and I think uh, Spock summed it up perfectly when he said, If I may be so bold, it was a mistake for you to accept promotion. Commanding a starship is your first best destiny. Anything else is a waste of material. Mm -hmm. And I, I think that's absolutely true. And so for Kirk to end up back in that place is absolutely where he should have ended up. I just think... This whole I feel young thing was, I don't know, melodramatic. Yeah, I'd say I didn't like the whole I feel young thing either. I liked the one moment at the beginning where he has that, I think it's the line that he says about like gallivanting across the universe as a job for the young and the rest of the original crew is there and they're like, what is he like to, did he just insult us? They're like, now what is that supposed to mean? What is he talking about? I liked that moment, but in general, I didn't like it. And I didn't like how they set up, you know, the experience of seeing a planet makes him feel young. I didn't really buy that or connect to that. I did like the whole thing where Kirk is basically out of his element through the entire movie. I think that's part of the reason Mm. that I like the original series movies in general, is that Kirk doesn't have as sure a footing of himself. He's... Starts the movie as an admiral when he should be a captain. And even at the end of the movie, when he's sort of back to it, his best friend has died. Hmm. And he's lost again. So that aspect of light, the, the young and old stuff, I I wasn't such a fan of. Yeah, you've made me think of the bit where McCoy tells him to get down to the, the engine room. And he doesn't tell him because of Spock, but he looks over to Spock's chair. His first reaction is, turn to my best friend, what's going on? Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's nice. Mm-hmm. I, I hate that last line of I feel young. I think I kind of get what they're doing, but there are there are better ways to have both set up that line and had a line to deliver. Mm-hmm. It, it's very clunky. Now, Mandy, did you guys, in the versions you watched, did you have the explanation of why he gets the glasses from McCoy? I don't think so. Okay, because the director's edition... he's just old and needs to read. <laughs> in In the director's <laughs> version, they did add a few seconds there, I think. Um, normally McCoy has a medication he can, like, put onto the eye, but Kirk's allergic to it. So where most people don't have to go through the thing of wearing glasses, he actually does because there's no other, like, new technology that can fix it for him. So I think that helps your, like, how he's affected by feeling old. Is that, like, he's getting old, he can't see, he can't even have the medical technology to help his eyesight normally and then even at the end of the movie his glasses have broken and he's trying to sit there trying to read the book hmm. it's like <laughs> nope yeah the the thread of the glasses throughout it is really clever to show him he hates putting them on in front of the crew mm-hmm. just before he does he goes damn and then puts them on 
and I, I love that moment where you you have the introduction of Khan, and Khan is villainous and monologue and and clearly very powerful and angry. And then you cut to Kirk in the back of a shuttlecraft with his glasses on reading a book. And you just have this opposition of them. Okay, they are two very, very different people at this point. And it's it's setting up a really good uh, showdown between them. Yes. There's, there's, I have seen discussions, let's put it that way. I have seen discussions about the fact they never meet. And that perhaps they should have. And it would have been better if they actually have a, a face-to-face at some point. But the problem is... Khan is so powerful, if you put them face to face, you've got to restrain them somehow, or got to, because he can overpower Kirk. Mm-hmm. You've got to play the game in another way. Um, mm-hmm. So making them have to sort of take command of the ships is a much better way of doing that, I think. It's interesting, because I didn't even think about that until you said that, because it's done so well, the conflict is done so well, that you don't think about the fact that it's, they're separate the whole time, mm. that it, they're on two different starships, because the conflict is so real and so threatening that that's that's interesting Mm. and this although it's science fiction it could very much be battleships or submarines or something else right i mentioned spock obviously is the other one that it it pays a lot of attention to with his uh he is now captain of the enterprise and and training people up mandy i didn't tell you who was captain of the enterprise because obviously it starts off with savik in charge how did you feel as spock as the the mentor in charge of the ship training people up I was really surprised that Spock was the captain because the way they introduced the movie, I thought Savick was the captain. I didn't Mm. realize that it was just a training exercise, and it took me a little bit of time to figure that out. Um, But when I did figure it out, my first thought was, oh, yes, that's right. If Kirk can't do it, then of course it should be Spock. So it made sense to me. Okay. Although I didn't really understand why... Almost all of the original crew was still there, but we had all these new training people too. So, like, that didn't really make sense to me. Because I feel like it either should have been all new people or all just the original crew. Like, I don't know why they had to both be there. Mm, pass. <laughs> Maybe it's uh, in the first film, so many ships were destroyed by Fija, the mystery cloud that they're now having to recruit huge numbers of people to fill in junior positions. Okay. Maybe. That's <laughs> okay. that's the that's the explanation for why in Empire Strikes Back and Return of the Jedi the Imperial forces are a bit rubbish because all the good Imperials were on the first Death Star. Right. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, I guess when you watch like the original series and stuff and you, or even like the next generation or voyager or whatever you focus so much on the the who you call the crew which are like the the five or six main people mm-hmm. and everybody else is just in the background but there was this whole series where a starship was crewed by these like five people and you don't really pay attention to anybody else. And then you get to this movie and you've still got those same five people, but all of a sudden we're paying attention to all these other people too. And it just felt different and like too much. Okay. I don't know if that makes sense or if it's just my brain being weird. It's okay I... if it's just my brain being weird. <laughs> no, I, I got that sense a little bit too. Because only Chekhov really has another posting. That's right. it. Mm. And then even Sulu is like sitting in with the trainees. And... In the simulation room, and McCoy is there as well, and 
I'm not sure. Perhaps they were there as well to assess the other people who were cadets. Like, they were there to make their own observations afterwards and give feedback was possibly one Maybe. of the reasons. Yeah, think... as a kind of head to department thing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think in my head I just kind of have to whistle past it and just say it is what it is because mm. just logically it doesn't make sense to me. <laughs> mm-hmm. Interesting you saying it's obviously Spock because they, 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 they don't lean into it as him as captain. You don't see him doing the Kirk thing. And the the moralizing the speeches and the going on away teams, but they, they we also don't see a proper mission anyway. And in the series, they did address Spock looking for command uh, on one or two occasions, and it never went as well as he'd like. As a, you need some emotion to be able to lead people was the implication, hmm. which is not true clearly. Because then we come to Savik, who is on some sort of command promotion seeking thing on the command track. Um, did you like Kirsty Alley as a Vulcan and as as Spock's mentee? Kirsty Alley does not work for me as a Vulcan. Okay, <laughs> <laughs> not even a little bit. Is that because you were experience of her elsewhere? Maybe I'm, I'm not sure if it's because I'm just so familiar with her doing all of these really expressive, emotive things, or and that was bleeding through what I was seeing, or. If she really just couldn't be expressionless in Vulcan. Okay. Because <laughs> I felt like her performance was very full of passion and sass and sarcasm and all of these things that you don't expect from a Vulcan. Unless that Vulcan has been with Kirk for 30 years. <laughs> that's interesting because that that's something I do expect from a Vulcan. For them to actually be uh, giving it back a bit. In a, a logical, unemotional way, but they do cut back because they consider themselves superior. Right, but I I didn't feel like her sassiness was unemotional. Okay, got it. Mm. She had too I mean, much her, pride and so on. Maybe. Her face mm. is very expressive, and so it, it just didn't work. Like, I actually had to look at her ears a couple of times and be like, oh yeah, she's playing a Vulcan. Because <laughs> okay. I would forget that that's what she was. I enjoyed her sass, but in mm. all of the uh, female Vulcans in the original series movies, she's down near the bottom in general for the rest of the ones we see. I think she did a good job, but I think some of the other women we've seen playing Vulcans later on have done better. Yes, I would 100% agree with that. Mm. <laughs> and that's basically all I'm going to say on, on yep. the matter. Yeah. Um, <laughs> Although actually, um, Sonequa Green from Discovery, mm. she she does a very good impression of Spock, basically. Yes, yeah. But she's not really Vulcan. She's just raised that way. Yeah. Which almost makes it better. Yes. <laughs> um, last, last topic I think I wanted to cover is Genesis itself and the Marcuses. Um, Genesis is is a MacGuffin for any sort of weapon, basically. It, you could almost take it out and the plot would largely be the same. It just gives us a reason to focus it around this space station and this area and, and reasons for Kirk to come across. What do we make of the fact he has a son that's never been mentioned before and a relationship that's never been mentioned before and suddenly we have this hugely powerful scientific theory? Okay, those are two <laughs> kind of different things. <laughs> um, okay, 
As far as David goes, I'm not surprised because Kirk has a reputation for being a womanizer. And so it completely makes sense to me that he would have a random kid somewhere. What I was surprised about was that he knew about him. Hmm. You know, when when he, you know, just casually looks at Carol and is like, is that David? I was like, oh, my God, that's his kid. <laughs> and then it turns out that really was his kid, you know. Um, and so it was surprising, but not surprising all at the same time, I think. I think they handled it well, but it really served no purpose for the story. Hmm. Yeah. One aspect of it that I liked was that Kirk kind of knew about it, but it wasn't a big issue. Like, they didn't do the big reveal and then have, like, how did you not tell me and, like, recriminations and accusations. I'd, I'd like to think that in the future in space when, you know, an unexpected child is a result of an adult union that they handle it with maturity and that mm. Carol Marcus being a responsible scientist could totally just make the decision to be like, yeah, okay, I'm going to have the baby. I'll tell Kirk. And Kirk is like, well, I'm a starship captain. And she's like, yeah, I get that you can't just like stop and do this. And that's cool. I wasn't intending a lifelong partnership with you, but just FYI, I'm going to have your kid. And that it wasn't made a big deal. Like I, I appreciate that in the future, that could be a, a reality. Hmm. Because that doesn't seem to happen too often nowadays. Uh, so I appreciated that part of it. David's performance in general really kind of grated on my nerves. And okay. um, yeah, I won't say anything else about the whole... I won't make any other comments on the purpose of that story. Okay. Does it come up again in later movies? Hmm. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Hashtag no comment. <laughs> no. Yeah. Okay. So they're... Okay. Fine. Then they may be setting something up for the future, but for the purpose of this story that we're mm. talking about, yeah. if he wasn't there, the story wouldn't have changed. I think that David helps point out some of the uh, the flaws of Starfleet so that we get his criticisms that are separate from Khan and the villain, which I think adds a bit of balance. But I don't think that necessarily had mm. to be David. I think that just comes from David because he's a little bit bitter that his father didn't choose to stick around. Yeah, because that's one of the things Half Bennett did is he made this a much more uh, naval military force mm-hmm. with the everyone's called Mister and you have the the Botsman's call and so on as they come on board. Mm-hmm. And even when they did the uniform redesign, they went with a mm. much more militaristic feel because they couldn't recreate the original series uniforms, so they went with something. Yeah, that everyone's was... in trousers now. Yes, mm. thankfully, yes, <laughs> no miniskirts. <laughs> yes. Mm. Yeah, this could, you're absolutely right, Mandy, this could be a generic space station calling for help. And it doesn't change. There is no point at which David himself is in peril, except that it helps Kirk be a little bit more motivated. But he should be that motivated for anyone who's in trouble. Right. Picard would be. (laughs) Yes, of course, because Picard is always right. (laughs) I think it helps the call go out specifically to Kirk. Because they know that Carol knows him and that he's connected, Khan uses that as a way to manipulate the situation so that Kirk specifically comes and not just any Starfleet vessel if they're calling for help. So that adds a little bit to it. Because they knew as soon as they mentioned Jim Kirk's name that she would call him directly and not just complain to whoever in Starfleet. Hmm. Right. But aside from that, that... They could have gotten there a few ways. 
and Kirk should have just been as motivated by anybody in that situation. Yeah. I'm not going to go through the um, other crew members because they're not treated hugely well by the film. They're just there and they help out and they each get a line. Well on you. Um, <laughs> there's a couple of Star Trek tropes that I quite enjoyed seeing. So I think this might be the origin of them. And the, the first was the, the list that is real person, real person, Star Trek person. They'll remember you in one breath. Newton, Einstein, Sorak. And of course, that's, that's recently come up again because they did the Wright brothers, Elon Musk and Zephram Cochran. <laughs> I think this is where that comes from. And, and the same sort of thing, the allusions to Earth literature being um, a, a, an alien race within Star Trek. The... Do you know the Klingon proverb that tells us revenge is a dish that is best served cold? I actually Googled that to make sure that was an actual real proverb and didn't originate <laughs> from Star Trek. <laughs> I was like, wait a minute. That's not where that came from. Yeah. <laughs> um, but also because I had not realized that Spock's famous line, The needs of the many outweigh the needs of the few. Came mm. from this movie. I assumed that was something he had always said over the course of the series. But it's not. No, it's just this film. But it, it is used very powerfully how the, the two scenes, uh, the handing over of command and then his death scene sort of play against each other. Yeah. Yeah, I always like that. I would like to hear mm-hmm. from Mandy about her, about your favourite moments and elements of this film. I had two mm-hmm. that are things that we haven't talked about. Um, in in Savick's uh, test of the, uh, I can't remember the name of the test at this moment, Kobayashi Maru. Kobayashi Maru, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, the fake deaths that the crew did, the bridge crew did, including Spock, <laughs> were incredible. I mean, they were they were launching themselves all over the place, and uh, that was pretty awesome. And then Kirk walks in, and Spock just like opens his eyes and sits up. I was I was greatly amused. It's wonderful, isn't it? Because he then does he does the head drop as he dies as well. Yeah, yeah. I, I think as Jen said, because it was uh, leaked possibly by Gene Roddenberry, that he was going to die in, in a way to try to save the character. Um, I suspect that's why they did this fake death so early on. Oh, so people wouldn't be expecting it later. Yeah. They would assume that the leaked death was this fake death. Mm. It's oh, quite clever. And, and to kill, I think they kill Uhura first. Maybe Sulu. So it's like, oh, actually everyone's dead. Oh, no, no, it's just a game. <laughs> <laughs> I also love this scene. Especially McCoy's mm. line at the end about enjoying the performance. And I think it's <laughs> yeah. almost the main characters getting to poke fun at their performances on the TV show. Because so often that's what they'd have to do when the ship was under fire is they didn't actually have good special effects. So they'd have to like mm-hmm. lurch and throw themselves around the, <laughs> the bridge for filming <laughs> to make it seem like they were under attack and everything was shaking around. And so I think this was also them getting to like really ham it up and then have it be like a performance and just have fun with it. Yeah. Because it was, yeah, yeah, it was very enjoyable. A little winky nod. That's right. <laughs> Love it. My other favorite thing, and I think this is my very favorite thing in the whole movie, was at the very end uh, when they saved what it, were accustomed to being the opening monologue to Star Trek to the end and having Spock do it. Mm. Um, when when he when the first like chimes of the the song started and then space 
the final frontier. I literally got goosebumps. Oh. It, just, it was it was wonderful, and I really liked it. A, a question I meant to ask you earlier, actually, have you seen uh, Star Trek Into Darkness? Yes. Okay. Because that is kind of a remake of this, but they, they flip so much of it with Kirk dying and, and Spock doing the Khan cry and so on. I don't really remember much of okay. it, um, but I didn't have this as a reference. Yeah, I didn't have this mm. as a reference when I watched it, and so it would have just all went over my head anyway. Okay. Um, all I remember is that Benedict Cumberbatch played Khan, and it was very interesting because the actor who played David in this kind of looks like Benedict Cumberbatch. Oh, you're right. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> it was just weird. I haven't actually seen Into Darkness yet. Okay. You're so, not missing anything, I'm afraid. Yeah. I'm I'm waiting until I can track down the third movie and then just like watch them back to back because I haven't seen those two. And I've heard okay. so I figured doing them back to back it'll end on a high note. <laughs> yeah. Yes, yeah, yeah absolutely. The, so. The only other thing I remember about the second one is that Noel Clark has a small part uh, in the beginning, and he played Mickey on Doctor Who. So he did. <laughs> yes, he did. <laughs> like that and Benedict Cumberbatch are all I remember. Okay. <laughs> yeah. Yay, British actors playing kind of villainous dudes. <laughs> And, and, and I'm afraid we've clearly just spoiled what was meant to be a big secret in Into Darkness for you, Jen. Oh, that's okay. I'm <laughs> yeah, fairly... because they just... lied. At... Yeah, that's why I didn't watch it, because they lied so much about the whole premise. <laughs> and then when it was like, yeah. well, yeah, it's... and I was like, oh, I was so angry. I kind of didn't watch mm. it on principle. Okay, Jen, handing over to you. Your favorite thing can be that this is Star Trek, <laughs> but is there anything particular <laughs> to this film that you love so much? I've been trying to think about it to figure out why I enjoyed the films and the the whole original series films in general, how I enjoy them, but I don't enjoy the original series TV show as much. And I think it Mm. goes back to the fact that through many of them, Kirk is trying to find himself again. And so that's why I like Mm. the premise of the movie being like, you know, he's not a captain anymore. He kind of doesn't know what to do with himself. And uh, one of the favorite scenes I have is when Kirk is on the ship and Khan has revealed himself and Kirk figures out the plan to have them drop their shields. And he's like turning around and then like putting on his glasses and like mouthing things to people and having to do it in such like a sneaky way that just tickled me for some reason. And I really enjoyed Mm -hmm. that he was overcoming Khan with his specialized scientific knowledge as opposed to just like out fighting him with superior power. So that was one of my favorite parts for the, how they were going to outsmart him. And similarly when they're in the nebula and they figure out that, yeah, space is three dimensional. So um, let's just (laughs) sink down and then pop up behind him. And uh, they were using, those kinds of methods to outwit Khan was, in general, what I enjoyed about it. It wasn't just Kirk, you know, getting into a fist fight like the TV show might have done. And Okay, so can you guys maybe explain something to me that I missed? Okay. Okay. I was having a really hard time with the Nebula scene because, like, like you said, they decided, hey, space is three-dimensional, so we can sink down and pop up behind him. 
But how did they know where behind him was when their sensors didn't work and they couldn't see? They didn't. It was just like hope and luck and okay, we sort of have seen them at this point and we kind of know their bearing from their firing pattern and we're just going to try this and hope to, that it works. Okay. I, just, I got really frustrated because I couldn't figure it out. I was like, this doesn't make any sense. All of his guesses are right. And like statistically, that's not possible. <laughs> and it just frustrated me, even though it was really, really cool how every time they did it, like the music swelled and it was this really great like battle winning thing. And it, like it made me feel really good. Like, yeah, Kirk's going to get him and he's outsmarted him. But then I'm like, wait, that doesn't make sense. <laughs> so, Okay. It was just luck. <laughs> because reasons. Yes. Okay. <laughs> because Kirk. <laughs> yeah. Okay. I think I have a couple of bits that I particularly love. Mm. Um, and, and yeah, Kirk is central to this, so he's in both of them. I, I love the the humor of the, the film in general, but particularly between Kirk and McCoy. Almost any, anything they say to each other, they are ribbing each other or having a joke. Uh, when they're trying to have the, the really serious discussion where, where Bones turns up and gives him the glasses. He's just had the, the Romulan ale. And he says, oh, What is it? Playing on aphrodisiacs? <laughs> <laughs> and then uh, McCoy does try to give him some really sensible advice, and he clearly doesn't like the advice. So he says, Don't mince words, Bones. What do you really think? <laughs> <laughs> Felt really bad for McCoy in this movie. Just because mm. he's trying so hard to cheer up his friend, to figure out what's wrong and then he's completely overshadowed because spock dies yeah and it's all about kirk's grief and spock and that's the thing and i'm just mm. like you've got a really good friend right there with mccoy yeah given the three of them are the, are the central three to the series and the films mm -hmm. he doesn't have a huge amount to generally do in the in this film there's no particularly medical things he can help out with so much yeah. um I, I i also love it when they're on almost the inversion of all this humor when they're on the elevator and Kirk hears that Carol Marcus is calling. McCoy has a line along the lines of Never rains, but it pours. And Kirk just shoots him a look. As a physician, you of all people should appreciate the dangers of reopening old wounds. Mm -hmm. And McCoy, you almost set up to have this sort of call and response of, you know, banter back and forth. He just, you know, open hands and just says, Sorry. <laughs> You you know this is actually a bit deeper. He's pushed it a bit further than he should have done. Yeah. I, I quite like they actually have a bit of a mature relationship. It's not all jokey, winky, nice, fun stuff. Yeah, and I get the sense at that point that McCoy might be a bit frustrated with him mm. and is maybe trying to push him to face things a bit instead of just giving him a, a pass. Yeah. Like, you know, you're you're kind of in this mood. We've been trying. And I'm kind of going to, you know, sorry, but maybe facing old wounds is what Kirk needs. Mm. Which, again, strikes me as one of the reasons McCoy is a really good friend to Kirk. And yeah. the movie doesn't really pay attention to that too much because of Spock's relationship with Kirk. And if this was going to be the last film or, or you know, mm -hmm. Star Trek for Spock, you have a classic McCoy-Spock showdown in the middle there over Genesis. Yes. Oh, I also really loved that <laughs> scene, actually. That they really got into the mm -hmm. debate of science and ethics, and it was McCoy pointing out right away that this Genesis project was a bad idea, and mm -hmm. who does have the right judgment to use it, and there was Spock admiring it just for its logic and its pure science. 
I'd actually forgotten. <laughs> shades they... of Jurassic Park in there. Yeah. Yes, definitely Shades of Jurassic Park in there. <laughs> um, I also love William Shatner's acting throughout this. Uh, Mandy, you said about how he overacts quite a lot. Um, but there are some great moments in here. Where, when he drinks the Romulan ale and he has to try and swallow it down because this really is something that's going to knock your head off. Um, and there's a similar moment where he and Spock are talking and Spock says, Where are you after now? The Enterprise. I must check in before your inspection. And you. Where are you going? And he said, he just, it gives this sort of half, very sad look of... Home. Because it it should be, oh, I'm going home, I've actually got a break. But his home is the Enterprise. But that's not what he means in this moment. And and you feel all that just from that one word that he delivers. And and the look that he shoots McCoy later on in the, in the elevator about the uh, the reopening old wounds is terrific. Okay, well, is there anything else that we need to discuss about Star Trek Two? I think we've covered my points on this movie. There is a Star Trek Three, believe it or not. We have another like ten, eleven movies in this series potentially. Yep. Uh, how are you feeling? Do you want to keep going with them at some point? Yeah, I mean, I did really enjoy this one. I'm super, like. I enjoyed it enough that it kind of makes me want to go back and watch this show, which I've Ooh. never wanted to do before. <laughs> I'm not, sure I'm not saying good. I'm going to, because, I mean, who has time? Yeah. But I enjoyed it a lot. So I, I would definitely be on board with, with going forward um, and maybe even going back to watch the first movie, even though you guys both hate it. But maybe I don't need to. <laughs> I would say if you enjoyed the experience of these actors doing this kind of thing, that you're going to see it again in the movies. And the TV show doesn't quite have the same dynamic. Um, mm. Like, the movies are so separated from the TV show that they kind of have, like, a, a wink-nod feel to the acting of the actors. Whereas in the TV show, they were all taking themselves quite seriously and the feel of it is is a little different. And it was in the 60s, so there was a lot of elements that are not progressive at all. I mean, it is okay. progressive in terms of certain things, like having Uhura and Chekhov and Sulu. But in other ways, it's it's a little hard to swallow at times. Okay. Yeah. So there's certain episodes you might want to go see just so you could say you've seen them. Like you might go back and watch Space Seed. Uh, just so you can see Young Con and how that mm. played out and see how everything started. But I wouldn't recommend going back and watching every episode of the original series. But definitely the movies. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Two, th- this one, and then three and four, they're, they're discrete movies, but they do form something of a trilogy. Um, so they're quite good. Je- Jen, what are your thoughts about watching Star Trek V? Um, I would say it's optional <laughs> as well. Okay. Um, it's not one like I've seen it, but it's not one I ever feel like going back to to rewatch, except for a couple of key scenes um, that I typically like that particularly I enjoy. Okay. But I I wouldn't say it's necessary to see them as a whole. But definitely three, four, and six I'd say are worth watching. Okay. Yeah. You guys are killing me here. <laughs> <laughs> Well, like Matthew said, three and four sort of form, loosely form a trilogy. I actually started off watching Star Trek four, and the fact that it mm-hmm. comes after two and three, like it made more sense after I'd gone back and watched Star Trek two and Star Trek three. I was kind of like, oh, this kind of fills in some pu- pieces of the puzzle for the plot of Star Trek four. 
Uh, but it wasn't necessary. And then Star Trek Six, I just think, is one of the best original series well, and Star yeah. Trek films in general. Okay. Yeah, Star Trek Six is absolutely my favorite. It's mm-hmm. a phenomenal movie. Mm-hmm. Mm. Um, Jen, is there any other recommendation, Star Trek or non-Star Trek related, that um, you think Mandy might not have seen? Well, she didn't mention Star Trek Deep Space Nine in that things she has seen. Um, and I always like to recommend people watch that since it's my favorite. <laughs> but it is like seven seasons of Star Trek, and there's quite a lot there. So I understand if you wouldn't want to tackle that whole thing. Like I said, Star Trek Six, I would recommend. And then for other recommendations, this was one of the really hard parts as I was thinking about recording this episode, because I'm also slightly pop-culturally deprived. And so, <laughs> like, I, I kept looking at my DVD collection, and either it was like, oh, well, they did an episode on that, and they've done an episode on that, or there were things that were so obscure that I don't think they would potentially be easy to find or have a lot of traction. But one film that I loved from my childhood that I will mention, and I don't know if Mandy's seen it or not, would be The Last Unicorn. I don't think I've seen that. Okay. So I would recommend seeing that. It's based on a book, and there's uh, quite a bit of good pop culture bits from the 80s. It's It can be slow at times. like It doesn't quite have the same pacing as modern animation, but there's some beautiful things there, and the story is really good and... It's one of my nostalgic childhood films. So I would add that to your list. Have you seen that one, Matthew? I don't think so. I feel like I'm confusing it for a Tom Cruise film or something. I don't know. Well, it's animation, okay. so I don't and I don't think Tom Cruise uh, probably does not any then. of the voices. <laughs> <laughs> mm, we will pop it on the list, I think. Okay. We also had a couple of great comments on Twitter about this episode when I called out for some feedback. Uh, Carrie at We Do Words said it had been a very long time since seeing this and the other uh, original series movies, but remembering being surprised at liking them because the original series is basically nails on a chalkboard, guessing the movies are updated enough for the times and the tastes. That seems to be the general consensus. (laughs) (laughs) I wonder if it's because they have two hours, they can't deal with some of the the sort of uh, minor characters or lesser crew members, so they don't have time to be racist or sexist at them. Whereas, you know, 30 episodes a season as that original series was, you have a lot of time to do some uh, difficult things. <laughs> uh, at the Becca Ella uh, said that she's watched Star Trek since she was little and loves them all. Uhura taught her that it's okay to be smart and sexy at the same time. About Khan specifically, she remembers being terrified of him as a small child. It was on cable sometimes and one of the movies they watched a lot. He always felt villainous. The whole movie was sweeping and epic and already knew the heroes and wanted them to win. Yeah, we've not hugely addressed that, that this is one of the first times the TV series was turned into movies. Oh, was it? I think so. Certainly on, on this scale, not just like the Brady Bunch movie or... <laughs> right. <laughs> I don't know if there, there was a Brady Bunch movie for the original series. Certainly they tried to reboot it, but... Yeah, the the films come with a lot of baggage already. Yeah. Mm. It worked. Yeah. Hmm. Um, and at Josh Ruckus, wanted to talk about the awesomeness that is Ricardo Montalban, uh, that he balances camp and making the seething, single-minded revenge believable. He really did. Mm. Apparently. He very, very good. He was a very professional actor as well on set. 
that was mm. one of the other tidbits from the interview was that they filmed one of his scenes early on, his reveal scene on the desert with the crew. And apparently mm. they got like the whole thing in one take. And that after that, all of the other regular cast members apparently started taking everything a little more seriously. And okay. like, because he just portrayed himself as such a consummate professional on set, they sort of mm. started like sharpening up their own game when he was started filming with them, which I thought was interesting. Yeah, I can believe that. Yeah. He was very experienced and, and takes it very seriously. Yes. He's good. Yeah. I th- there's a famous uh, possible incorrect thing here that he sees Chekhov and he says, "Oh, Mr. Chekhov, I never forget a face." But actually, Chekhov wasn't in the first season, so <laughs> was not on the Enterprise in inverted commas. But uh, it's it, it's explained in World that Chekhov was, but he was on the night shift or he was a you know junior cadet or something. Right. <laughs> but the, the production reason is that Walter Koenig, who plays Chekhov, had actually done some writing for the animated series. So they asked him to do a, a run through the script to spot inconsistencies. And he spotted this and he knew that they would change it or take his part away or something if he pointed it out. So he didn't. <laughs> and I like That's that fantastic. reason. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I love Star Trek. There's just so many stories both in the world and about it. It's fantastic. Yes. (laughs) All right. Well, if you'd like to have your thoughts featured in this segment, you can use the hashtag PC Deprived on Twitter. You can find us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram at Eloquent Gushing. You can also email us at podcast at eloquentgushing.com, or you can leave us a voice message at speakpipe.com slash eloquentgushing. You can find each of us on Twitter. I'm at Mandy Kay. And I'm at Matthew Vokes. Jen, thank you so much for joining us. It's been lovely to gush about Star Trek with someone who loves it just as much. I always enjoy gushing about Star Trek, so anytime you want to do this again, please let's let me know and we can make that happen. <laughs> nice. Um, where can people find you and your show? Well, my podcast you can find on Twitter at Command of Her Own. And uh, I podcast there with my friend Kate. We're doing an episode-by-episode episode reaction podcast to Star Trek Discovery. And that comes out every Wednesday-ish, depending on Kate and my work <laughs> schedules and everything. And uh, me personally, I'm on Twitter, and you can find me at Generosity, and that's spelled J-E-N-N-E-R-O-S-I-T-Y. Pop Culture Deprived is 100% funded by listeners like you through our Patreon page. Any amount you can give, even $1 a month, gives access to exclusive content and helps to support the network and other shows. To find out more, visit patreon.com slash eloquentgushing. And don't forget to visit the website, eloquentgushing.com, to subscribe to our weekly newsletter and keep up to date with everything that goes on with our shows. We'll be back next week with another episode of Pop Culturally Deprived, where we'll talk about seasons one and two of Parks and Recreation. Until next time, I'm Mandy Kay. And I have been, and always shall be, your friend. Pop Culturally Deprived is an Eloquent Gushing production. For more information, go to eloquentgushing.com or find us on Twitter at Eloquent Gushing.